HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box and Clover, working together to provide restaurants with even more technology for a better hospitality experience. Visit getbento.com better to learn more. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I hope every single one of them is listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is at a place called Sugar Lab, which is billed as the world's first digital bakery, which sounds really exciting and futuristic. And it is exciting and very futuristic. And if you're following along at home or in the car or subway or wherever you listen to your podcasts and you have access to the internet, I recommend you go take a look at their website, which is sugarlab3d.com, sugarlab numeral three, letter d.com. And that is also their Instagram handle at sugarlab3d. Um, the pieces are just really spectacular. And this is the first time we've done digital printing on the show. Um, even though digital printing for food has been around for a while, um, Halloween's coming up. You know, we're talking a lot about candy. So why not? It's a lot of fun. And when I was first looking into it and, and thinking about having this as a topic on the show, you know, the objects and the edibles and, you know, treats or pastries or sweets. Um, that they have on the Sugar Lab website are, are really beautiful. And I wondered, you know, what what we need these things for. But turns out, you know, we like really beautiful things. And it made me think about, I wonder when the pastry bag was first invented, because the pastry bag's sole purpose is to make things beautiful and to also make things a little bit more efficient in the kitchen pastry baking process Things can be uniform. You can make things easier um, when things are uniform and you're making a sheet pan of eclairs or something like that. It'll be easier to bake and everything will come out perfectly. And I did a little research and it turns out that the pastry bag was invented around 1820 by Anton Carême, Marie-Antoine Carême, who is a famous, famous classic French chef. Um, he's very well known um, for beautiful, spectacular presentations. 
if you look online or have opportunity to ever see one of his old original cookbooks, everything is like pièce montée, beautiful pieces for the buffets and gelée and all kinds of things. And it's really over the top and extremely opulent um, and really beautiful. So, you know, in some ways, uh, when I was workshopping, putting this show together, it's like, well, you know, we do like to eat beautiful things and we do like to see beautiful things on the table. So I guess maybe 3D printing might be like today's version of the pastry bag. And you know, who knows? Uh, Candy is a big business, so it's not bad to make sweet treats anyway. So joining us today um, is the founder and CEO of Sugar Lab 3D, Kyle Van Halsen. Thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here. Thanks, Jennifer. Kyle and I had a very interesting conversation um, to get ready for this show. And um, we have so much to talk about. Um, I think you know, before we even get to um, calling it a digital bakery and why that's important and how you have pastry chefs along with, you know, digital tech computer people working side by side um, and the mechanics of how Sugar Lab works. Let's go back a few a few steps in a few years and and tell me why somebody who is an architect and, uh, um, you know, studies molecular ecology winds up developing a food 3D printer? Yeah, that's a great question and a good place to start, I think, um, because I really came to this technology and this space from outside of the food space. And I, th- I had like an inkling in a, of an idea that it could be important in the culinary space, but I really needed to bring other people along with me in that journey, chefs, namely, to kind of point the way and and help me understand what was really possible. So I was a graduate student in architecture um, with my wife and partner, Ren, and she and I ran a little cottage business at, at graduate school where we would 3D print models for students. Uh, 3D printers were just becoming common at this time. This was about a decade ago in 2011. So these are... 3D models for architecture students, design students, where you're making exactly the really fun um, mock-ups that we see sometimes that almost look like the little, um, I think of them as being the dioramas for like train stations and things like that, <laughs> That's like exactly. train kind of things. But when they build a model of what a building is going to look like or a house or a structure. That's exactly right. And I think most people probably 10, 15 years ago would imagine that architecture students would draw by hand on paper and then craft by paper the models that are evocative of the house or building a project they want to build. But in the 2010s, the thing that really happened at architectural schools is a lot of schools went paperless, as they called it, and students really learned to design on computers first. So they would draw with a mouse the 3D shapes that they wanted, and then they would take that 3D file and 3D print it so they would have a perfect one-to-one relationship between that drawing. Um, and so there was a really big transition in digital design during that time. And I was in that transition with other students and I had 3d printers and I offered them to my classmates as a business. So I would 3d print their digital models. And, uh, at the time, a lot of the materials that were 
that I used in the 3D printer, plastic, gypsum, clay, they were quite expensive because I was buying them from the original manufacturer. They were high quality, but they were really too expensive for my graduate student colleagues to afford or for me to use. And so I started to, uh, with my wife and partner, Ren, get access to other materials like sawdust and cement and sugar that were much, much cheaper. And we tested which would work well. And what we found was that sugar worked really reliably, and it also looked really beautiful. We took some early photographs of some of our 3D model projects in sugar. It was a little bit translucent because of the crystalline structure of sugar. And it was um, it was just so beautiful that we would come back to the project again and again. And eventually, I think I said to my partner, you know, what would it be like if we retrofitted this printer to be food safe, could we start a design firm for chefs instead of <laughs> for people that want to build homes as clients? And could we design 3D model for them and then 3D print that food and hand deliver it to them in Los Angeles? Which is amazing. Um, a couple questions along the way before we get too far away from the early 2010s is when we are, I think, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. timeline. This is when digital printing was really sort of first available widely and in the market. And my question to you about the materials that you were using, were they expensive because this was new technology? Were they expensive simply because they are elements that are expensive? Um, was it just something new and, and it you know hadn't quite been produced efficiently and at scale? Or were you too small to take advantage of things where... Where was the expense yeah. piece on the on the in- ingredients, if you will, or on the elements, if you will? Where was it sort of in the trajectory of, of 3D printing? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of a little bit of each of those. So I'll try to just capture it quickly. Um, it was partly expensive because we were all graduate students, so we had a small budget. It was partly expensive because 3D printing was new. And I was trying to help my graduate students and myself um, work with materials that were professional level 3D printers as opposed to hobbyist 3D printers. So that made things more expensive. And then the materials that we were buying were from the, um, 3D printing companies uh, themselves. So they were really refined formulas that worked very, very reliably. Um, so they were valuable and people certainly ran businesses with them, but for our little graduate student cohort, it was a little difficult and we were happy to trade off quality in the print for, um, less cost. So that was kind of the dynamic. And then you discovered sugar, which is fascinating. And then my, my question on the sugar models is, while sugar looks really beautiful, um, it's not, it, it, it can be not very stable sometimes because it. Um, essentially melts. It's so sensitive to humidity in the air and just sort of generally. And, you know, there is sugar work done in the pastry world where, you know, they melt sugar and they temper it and then they treat it almost like glass where they blow sugar, Mm -hmm. you know, sugar bubbles and sugar glass and they pull it and stretch it and, you know, harden it and it's shiny and it's really beautiful. Um, Sugar work is its own uh, craft and its own category of you know, like culinary pastry work, but the pieces are always very sensitive to the temperature and and humidity. So when you were building, when you were 3D printing architectural and design models, 
did they have a shelf life because of the sugar? Especially they did. That's a good West, question. Especially if you're on the West Coast in LA, <laughs> which is by the ocean. <laughs> yeah, good point. We were on the east side of LA in a pretty dry area, and I think we really benefited from that. It's essentially like a high desert environment. And so the the ambient humidity was quite low, and we really benefited from that. So some of the earliest 3D prints that we made lasted over a year uh, just on our shelves at home, and we were really struck by that. But to your point, you're right, they eventually did melt when there was like a big rainstorm for a couple days in a row, and the humidity inside our home would creep up. They would soften and wilt a little bit like a flower and collapse. Um but, uh, you know, there's two sides to that coin. Uh, we really rely on sugar's sensitivity to water in order to create the 3D print in the first place. And maybe I'll just explain that a little bit. I think consumers and people on your podcast will know that there are a lot of different kinds of ways to 3D print. I think we've seen some of those in the media. You know Most... what? Let's not assume that. Let's go okay, back okay. to Let... the very beginning yeah. and maybe walk through... 20, you know, from 2010 to printing non-edible things for sure. visual industrial design use and then the sugar idea and then walking through it because, I mean, it, it seems very apparent, you know, to you that's your business every day and has been something that you've been working with for over a decade. Um, I've seen 3D printers in person, but only at special things. I've seen sure. 3D printed things in, um, you know, museums even. Um, but I don't know that I've really seen one in action really up close. And okay. I'm very close yeah. Let's to explain a few of world, them. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think the kind that people are most familiar with is hobby is a hobbyist 3D printer, a lot like the MakerBot. And the way it works is it extrudes melted plastic. I often, when I have to describe it and I can't kind of show an image, what I like to say is it's a little bit like building those drip sandcastles or it's a little bit like having a hot glue gun. And if you were to exclude the glue slowly out of the glue gun, but also move the glue gun <laughs> in the XY plane, you could start to like pile up a three-dimensional shape. Obviously, if you used the glue gun and you were piling glue, it would be kind of lumpy and imprecise. But if you use the right kind of plastic and the right kind of robotics and software, you can make really precise plastic uh, 3D prints. That's the most common and probably the most affordable kind of 3D printing. But it's not the only kind. Um, in fact, in the industrial space, it's far more common to use one of the other 3D printing engines, as we would call them. So extrusion is that first engine that I just mentioned. But the other engines um, actually take a crushed material, like let's say a powdered nylon. They'll spread that powdered nylon in really thin layers. And at every layer, they'll have a laser traverse the surface. And that laser heats up and sort of welds the new nylon plastic beads to the previous layer that was welded. And that creates a structural plastic nylon object from this uh, dry powder. And uh, that technology is actually more similar to the technology that we use in the sugar and food space. So layers and layers, almost um, building something up with like sheets of phyllo dough or... Yeah. Um, layers of like potato slices or something like that yeah, is, is yeah. how I'm envisioning it. Sort of those 
uh, topographical maps where everything is like outlines almost. That's a really beautiful thing to picture. If you can picture that topographical map and kind of it extending up into the Z direction as you build, that's really a lot like the way that uh, those commercial 3D printers work and uh, the way our technology works. So you have this idea then of really going into sugar and making something edible. And then at that point in time, was there really food safe 3D printing? Was there 3D printing happening for food at scale? Or was it sort of like one off an artist or a chef person in a lab making very precious, expensive, you know? chocolate things is usually the way I think of it starting. Sure, yeah. It was more like the latter, but in the very earliest days when I was starting, it was even more rudimentary. So really the only people that were experimenting with it were actually um, food scientists, uh, researchers, kind of government researchers. NASA was actually an MIT where some of the very first collaborators that 3D printed with food. And they actually used famously that extrusion process that I described earlier where we were like extruding hot glue. But in this case, we could really picture that pastry bag that you referenced. So um, they would have a tube of food paste and extrude it really slowly. And they'll move that pastry bag kind of in the XY plane in order to create um, a more precise, structural, 3D-printed food object. And I saw those images in 2010, 2011 as a graduate student, and I was really struck because I compared it to my first work in this space, and the NASA MIT project looked very rudimentary. It didn't have color. Um, the, uh, the precision was very low. It could only make like loosely defined objects, and it could only make them so tall, like maybe under an inch tall. And I was working with a system that was using sugar that could add color, that could make really precise objects, and could make multiple objects simultaneously. And I really thought there was a technology mismatch, that early researchers were using extrusion technology because it was simple to access, so it was affordable to research. But the real way to build a meaningful piece of technology that a chef could really utilize would be to take this commercial technology and make it accessible to the culinary space. So your your expectation and interest in precision and sharp objects comes from your beginning in architecture when you're making a model of a structure. Um, precision's important. <laughs> yeah, I think that's Generally, exactly right. Conceptually in, in architecture and design, when we're talking about building buildings, mm -hmm. precision is important in terms of edges and measurements and ratios and how things look. It would be hard to sell a beautiful, you know, steel glass structure if it looked like, you know, a clay pot that a kid yeah, made. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I think it transfers like uh, in a really one-to-one -one way into the food space because a lot of the food that we consume is a very highly designed object. We don't always think of it that way because it seems commonplace to us, but you know, a loaf of bread is bioengineered to be flawless and it's been improved upon for hundreds of years. I think it really is a, a piece of high-tech technology and to be able to use... Um, to bring in digital technology, it really has to be um, able to be precise 
with color placement and with geometry placement in order to be meaningful to a chef because chefs, as you said, can do incredible work by hand. I mean, just really spectacular stuff that seems impossible. And so in order to um, create a tool, a 3D printer that's useful for those kinds of chefs, it has to be pretty spectacular as well. So you ultimately wound up building a machine that you have the patent for, which means it is the first one of its kind and very unique and a very unique uh, piece of technology if you have the patent. So tell us about that first machine and is that still the one you use today? No, we're many kind of generations away from the very first machine that I used. Um, So first I was retrofitting existing 3D printers to make them food safe. So we would clean out parts and replace pipes that needed to uh, be food safe. But eventually I um, joined forces with 3D Systems, which is one of the largest 3D printer manufacturing companies uh, in the U.S. or in the world, really. And together with them, I led a food program at 3D Systems um, alongside their other engineering programs, like their automotive engineering uh, uh, program and their uh, medical 3D printing programs. And we created this 3D printer really ground up from scratch. And the reason that we built it from scratch is that um, it needed to be NSF food safe in order to sell it in the United States. Um, that's the regulatory body that kind of keeps track of if kitchen equipment is safe and can be used commercially. And we had to, there were no other 3D printers with an NSF sticker. So we really had to work closely with NSF to invent and design and make sure every nut and bolt and every material in the 3D printer was food safe. And uh, now I'm working with probably the third or fourth or fifth generation of um, 3D printers uh, at this stage that we use commercially in our downtown Los Angeles kitchen. So now, You've been, you've perfected this. You're or made a better one. Maybe it's not perfect yet, because I'm sure your nature is to keep innovating and and rebuilding and and you know making different versions. What were what were the first things that you were printing with with 3D printer number one? What types of objects? What did they look like, and what did they taste like? Do you mean as a student? Are you wondering as a student or kind of as a professional after after school and starting the business? When you started the business. Yeah. When we started the business, I mean, my very first instinct was that the main area this technology would be relevant to was the um, pastry chef uh, because of that legacy of um, designing opulent objects for dessert that you referenced at the opening of the show. I really thought that that would be the space where chefs and consumers could really understand the technology and we should start there. That's really why we, we kind of call it Sugar Lab and a lot of our products are in the sweets area, although they aren't all. Um, and the very first designed objects were cake toppers. So we would build like very elaborate um, tall objects that could be 3D printed and assembled onto cakes we worked with projects for a few brides. One of our cakes was featured um, in like a photo shoot with Martha Stewart. We had um, just a number of high-end pastry chefs. Uh, we worked with uh, Chef Duff Goldman, who had uh, um, an office in Hollywood near our office. And we would just create 
all these really imaginative cake toppers. So we went big first. We made really large objects. And then over time, we started to make smaller and smaller things that were easier to kind of just pick up and admire and actually eat directly. And what are your offerings now? I'm looking at the website and everything is just really beautiful, really beautiful to look at. But tell us about what you're making now. Um, I'm so glad that you think that they look beautiful. We put a lot of work uh, into making that uh, the case, and I think they look incredible. They actually um, don't on- look like things you can eat. They remind me of, um, you know, they remind me of like little beads or jewels or sculptures or things like that that I would find in a, um, there's a little bead jewelry shop that I like in New York City, very close to Union Square. And they have just cases and cases of, you know, beautiful things like that, ornaments. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily look, look like something you would want to eat. I mean, beautiful chocolates we're used to seeing, but beautiful mm-hmm. chocolates always look like chocolate. Mm-hmm. They're always, you know, a brown chocolatey color. You know, they're shiny. They're in a box. I look, You look at them, you know immediately that it's a chocolate thing and you're supposed to eat it. But these don't necessarily um, signal immediately, you know, this is something you're supposed to eat. Yeah, I know what you mean. We hear that from customers too. Um, when you have them in person, they also smell delicious <laughs> mm. as you hold them. So that's like a big indicator that they're going to be delicious and people eat them. But we still have a lot of people who will, you know, we sell a lot in packs of six and people will eat five and save the six because they see it as this precious object and they love to admire it for many months. Um, and we, we think that's a great feature. Um, maybe everything should be or maybe many things should be designed uh, to that level of, of care. Um, in terms of the range, as I mentioned, and you've mentioned a little, we do have a lot of sweets and confections at Sugar Lab. One of our biggest things that we do are what we call chocolates. Um, and so we 3D print a, a hollow, thin sugar shell in really ornate colors like you're seeing online. And then because it's hollow, we can fill it with all kinds of chocolate ganache. Um, we've done like milk chocolate ganache with tahini, with an IPA that's been um, rendered down to just the syrup and a million other variations on those ganaches. They're really de- uh, delicious. So chocolates, sugar cubes is a big category. Um, actually drinks is emerging as a category that's really important for the company, which I didn't understand at first, but which our pastry chefs and research chefs helped point the way to. As you mentioned, right? Sugar dissolves really quickly. So of course it dissolves very quickly in a drink. And so we're starting to make more and more designed objects that are meant to dissolve in a liquid and that you can drink. So we have a lot of cocktail toppers. Um, and drink bombs. And let's just think of one. So we have this margarita lime and uh, it's made from lime, but also has an edible glitter. Um, and as you drop it into a drink, it'll turn it this like fun green color. It'll impart salt and some of the uh, sourness from the lime and it'll dissolve and have glitter as well. Amazing. It's the future of food today. And if you're interested in the future of food, and we certainly are at Heritage Radio Network, think about becoming a member. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, many of whom are listeners like you and underwriters like this one. Stay with us. (laughs) 
exciting news for restaurants. Bento Box and Clover have teamed up to provide even more technology for a better hospitality experience. With over 70% of diners researching restaurants online before they go in person, a strong digital presence is more important than ever. Bento Box's website, marketing tools, and commerce platform help restaurants get discovered online, make more money, and engage diners in person and virtually. And Clover's world-class POS and payment system streamlines daily operations for a totally seamless experience. With Bento Box and Clover working together, restaurants now have an all-in-one solution that makes it easy to deliver better hospitality from the kitchen to tableside and beyond. Bento Box and Clover, the right recipe for hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash better to learn more. That's getbento.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is a company called Sugar Lab 3D. It is the world's first digital bakery. If you want to check them out online, they are at sugarlab3d.com. That's sugarlab number three, letter D.com. You can find them on Instagram at sugarlab3d. I'm talking with Kyle Van Hassen, who is founder and CEO of the company. He's also inventor of the digital printing machine, owns the patents for them, which is very exciting. The objects that they make are beautiful, edible, and that in and of itself is something. You know, people love beautiful sweets. The sweet, the global candy market, confectionery market, was about $188 billion, with a B, dollars, $188 billion in 2020, which is a lot, a lot, a lot of candy. So certainly creating technology that goes into one of the biggest markets in the world is smart if you're an inventor. But like so much technology and so much technology in the food tech space, people are interested in going beyond just creating a beautiful product or something that tastes good. Certainly that's foundational. You can't be successful with a food product that tastes bad that nobody wants. But if you have something beautiful that tastes good, that's made in an interesting way, a lot of founders and companies have an interest to maybe changing the way things are done, maybe changing production, changing transportation, changing our carbon footprint by, you know, disrupting some of the traditional ways we do business. And, you know, I wasn't really thinking in those terms when Kyle and I spoke to get ready for this show, but commercial manufacturing and disrupting that industry is something that is on the horizon or something that you know sugar lab is thinking about so that that struck me as like very um very interesting beyond just beautiful sweets in a box so Kyle talk to us a little bit about how you know these beautiful sugar objects are going to be able to disrupt uh, traditional manufacturing. Yeah, that's a great point, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I'm among a lot of 3D printing proponents that believe really strongly that um, digital design and digital manufacturing can be really disruptive to to, to traditional manufacturing. 
In the food space, we can think of that as unfolding this way. The traditional way that a lot of food is made and distributed is that all the ingredients will be sent to one location, and then you'll add in water and also water weight and kind of bake or create the food object that you want to distribute. And then, you know, you've paid for all that fuel and all that CO2 goes into the atmosphere just to, to move it to the facility. But then you also have to distribute it with all that added water to all of its final locations to get to the customers. And with um, digital technology, 3D printing, we think we have um, uh, a really serious way to interrupt that pattern because the 3D printer is small and agile and it can be set up as fleets um, in various locations. And we're starting to do that at Sugar Lab. We want to open kitchens in other cities. And as we do that, you can see this pattern start to emerge um, where if we want to produce stuff in Atlanta or distribute stuff into Atlanta from Los Angeles, what we would do is actually just download, email and download the digital design that we've already created that we use here in Los Angeles. And um, we would load it up onto the 3D printers in Atlanta. And there's that is just a digital cost that happens instantaneously. We don't actually have to train uh, the folks who are using the 3D printers um, in Atlanta to do some kind of new manufacturing because it's a new product because the 3D printer itself is taught to do that by the 3D file that we send over. And if we're able to 3D print with ingredients local to that region, um, there's much less, um, uh, there's a much lower carbon footprint in that respect too. So, um, that's the way that 3D printing and digital distribution of 3D printers can be really impactful. Are there any changes that you need to make to the printing machines themselves? Because that really is the key piece of the manufacturing. When I think about um, traditional manufacturing and all the different things that they're making, it's about having to reset or recalibrate a machine, or mm -hmm. this machine only makes the circle ones, it can't make the square ones, or mm -hmm. it only makes the cold ones, it can't make the hot ones. So if you want the round square one or you you want the round hot one, you have to, you know, refit everything or you can't make it here. Is it really just as limitless or as similar as using a regular printer to print something at home? It's very similar to a, to a 2D printer and the way that you could email a Word document to uh, a friend across the country and 2D print that document on the other side and there's no distribution, right? You didn't have to print it out, fold it up, and mail it across the country and waste all that energy. Um, I it's, mean, I'm it's, maybe it's changing, so similar to that. I'm changing the medium maybe in my 2D printer. Maybe if I'm printing a photo, I'm putting in a photo paper. If it's something else, I'm using a different type of paper. Um, is it, does, well, yeah. how much how much how broad is the flexibility that you have on a 3D printer in terms of in terms of the business that you have if we took a look at all the products that are on your website right now you have um savory things you have the um the kimchi bouillon you have sweet things you have the drink bombs you have the chocolates do those all come off of the same machines they do and that's a really important um mechanism that we designed intentionally into the 3D printer that we've brought to market. Um, it's called the current 3D printer. And uh, that's C-U-R-R-A-N-T. And the reason we developed that 3D printer is because it's very open format and very flexible. A lot of the objects that we design have this sugar base 
Um, and you can kind of picture maybe pouring in powdered sugar and 3D printing with that. But because the 3D printer is designed to be open format. It also accepts really any other kind of dehydrated food powder. And your listeners will probably know, or they can understand kind of quickly that almost all the food we consume or all the food we're around can be dehydrated or is available as a dehydrated powder. And that's a very reliable and robust way to store it um, in a low energy way to store. And so we can 3D print with um, dehydrated fruits, dehydrated vegetables, grains, spices, even liquid ingredients that are dehydrated, like a liquid coffee. And we've 3D printed with all of those. We do that regularly in our kitchen today. And for any customers that come to us that want to develop their own retail product, we'll work with them to source their own ingredients that they specify, um, make sure they're de- dehydrated and, and in powder, or we can do that in-house, and then we'll 3D print with those. So in that you know, imagine scenario where we're going to send a 3D file to Atlanta. We wish we would also email the instructions for the kinds of ingredients they'll need to source and how they'll mix them. And um, then they can be 3D printing off and away with a brand new recipe. So ingredients being one of the hurdles that you had to overcome initially when you first started is now a mechanism that sort of expands your production opportunity. Which is interesting. You went from restricted to uh, very open and almost sky's the limit, which is maybe yeah. a good pivot point into um, another piece of this, which is interesting, calling it the digital bakery and explaining that you do have pastry chefs and it's mm-hmm. not scientists and designers, just scientists and designers walking into a room with, you know, you could picture something very futuristic like the all white lab and the printers in a room, very Willy Wonka that just has bins and bins of colored powders that they, you know, throw into a machine and <laughs> voila, there's a, you know, print something lovely and delicious to eat. But you do have pastry chefs and you do work with chefs, chef chefs, not. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, we have four pastry chefs on staff and that's, uh, the majority, the majority of the company is chefs. There's no other kind of category where, where more people are working. And if you were to walk into our kitchen in downtown LA, um, it really looks like a, a, a busy, full, robust, um, full of chefs kind of kitchen that you might expect any other commercial kitchen to look like. Um, the 3D printers themselves are stainless steel. So they, they are high tech, but they actually look kind of like legacy commercial kitchen equipment because the NSF regulates that all of that commercial kitchen equipment is stainless steel. So you might not even realize that they're 3D printers until you actually watch them operate. The only big difference in our process is that we don't rely on, uh, um, baking in ovens. So there's no like heat energy used in the process, which makes it very efficient as well. It's fun to think about calling it the first digital bakery. Something else we talked about was it's not exactly the precise nomenclature that you are looking for, but it was as close as you could get to describing what you do. Yeah, that's right. I think we were looking for a term. What we do is new. Um, it hasn't been done before. We're really proud that we're the first group doing that, including the chefs. They feel a lot of pride in that. Um, and there isn't exactly a term that, that's quite right. Um, and what I relied on was like having a, 
a term with two words, and I squeezed together digital and bakery. Digital to be evocative of the 3D design process that we have. So we work with a staff of 3D designers. If they weren't working for us, for example, they would work in maybe the gaming industry uh, for uh, for video games or in Hollywood for CGI and movie productions. They're very skilled artists. Designing can- things that are in 3D. Exactly right. In full color, like Mm. the kinds of things that we would see in movies or video games. Instead, we use that precision and their um, artistic prowess to create these models that can be then 3D printed. And the reason we chose bakery is that we have this staff of pastry chefs. And from their perspective, um, you know, the majority of the time that they're working, their job looks a lot like um, their previous pastry chef jobs. And that's because, yeah, you set up the 3D printer and let it run, but you're not interacting with the 3D printer while it's running. It's doing its thing. But prior to that and after that, the chef has their full suite of tools that they learned in school and out in the business uh, and worked hard to develop, they can use all those tools to improve the 3D prints. And what I mean by that is, for example, um, when uh, a new customer comes along and they want a brand new recipe, and it might include like pumpkin and cinnamon and nutmeg, something like that, right? We'll source a variety of powdered ingredients test those in the kitchen in a stainless steel bowl with the chefs exactly like you might for any other food that you would want to create. And then we'll 3D print with it. And when that object comes out, it's not finished. It's 3D printed into an incredible shape that would be difficult to mold or impossible to mold or impossible to make by hand. But now the pastry chef has that full arsenal to apply uh, to the 3D print itself. They can enrobe it in chocolate. Maybe if it's hollow, they'll make a ganache and pipe it in. They could make a yuzu pat of and add that into the center and a million other tools. Um, and so it, it really looks and operates um, functionally a lot like a bakery or patisserie. So fun to think about. Um, before Before we go, and we're almost out of time, and... I promised Kyle that we would absolutely run out of time and have too much to talk about, <laughs> which is often the hallmark of Tech Bytes, which is a good a good problem to have. You also did a collaboration with an artist, the artist James Jean, and is a BTS Seven Phases art series, um, which is sort of going the other way. You know, it makes sense to work with chefs and pastry chefs and restaurant people, and now you have the the drink pieces, which um, brings in, you know, bartenders and, you know, baristas and all those types of things. But you did a project with an artist and it seems to be so perfect to lend itself to this type of thing. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and do you have any more art collaborations coming up? Yeah, that's a, that was such a rewarding project. It was really cool. Um, this was a project for James Jean, who is a famous Asian American artist. His uh, fine art is displayed all over the world. Check him out. He makes these um, gorgeous drawings. Um, and we took some of his 2D drawings and translated them and made them into these what we call floral tea cookies. So they were made um, out of uh, matcha, uh, hojicha, I believe, was another uh, set of ingredients. And what you could do is like just drop them into warm milk and create this effervescent floral um, 
uh, hot tea experience. They're very beautiful to look at, but the engaging part is absolutely the like ritualized process of eating them. And it just brings up all these amazing things to mind, right? This is the kind of collaboration that would be rare, typically, I would imagine. But a 2D artist, a graphic artist, has so much to say now in the space where digital design and digital 3D printing is applicable because they can start to uh, be a partner to these kinds of things. And I also think chefs, younger chefs, will start to become more familiar with 3D drawing uh, because a lot of chefs I know will sketch and uh, draw um, either freehand or even um, a light digital. And I think we're going to see more and more of that over time as it becomes integrated. Yeah, the um, the pictures online are just beautiful, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Asian milk teas, the Hong Kong milk tea, mm-hmm. Taiwanese milk tea, um, and it just sounds really lovely. Um, you know, I will say it's not just the kids who are drawing their plates. Chefs have long, long time, yes, hundreds of years, yes. been drawing and designing. You know, their plates and things like that. There are famously some who would paint, you know, in notebooks and paint like the colors of the plates mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, so, I mean, it's such a creative industry, the culinary world, um, that this is so well suited to it. Uh, last thing, again, um, people can go to sugarlab3d.com and order things. There are custom things. The wedding things, if you're getting married, are just ridiculously gorgeous um, and obviously completely customized. Um, but just give us a sense, you know, in terms of... Um, in terms of right now, I mean, you talked about pumpkin spice, you know, uh, pumpkin spice latte cookies, chocolates are, it's very funny, um, are $24.99 to pre-order. You're going to be shipping those in a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what does something custom cost, though, just to give people a sense and just to have a sense of is this very, very precious um, to have? And this is, you know, sort of out of reach at this point in the terms of the technology, or is this something that, you know, regular regular podcasting folks can <laughs> well yeah we have access. a lot of regular podcasting folks uh, uh, and people that follow us on Instagram reach out um, and we do have a $500 minimum but people um, order for their events and small parties all the time and we're so happy to design custom things for a birthday or for a wedding or any kind of get together they can be chocolates or drink drops or something to pair with a cocktail all of that and more is very possible and in unique ingredients and using really any kind of precedent that you might have, whether it's a photograph or a drawing you've created, we can just turn that into an incredible um, experience for you and your guests. The little parts themselves could be, um, uh, if you're not ordering very many, maybe between 3 to $5 a piece, but they start to drop down really quickly if you're ordering a few hundred. They're really beautiful. Uh, and I would assume that as word gets out more and more about Sugar Lab, that you would just be inundated with with people and companies and publicists and promotion doing wanting custom pieces for things. I was just, I mean, completely unrelated, um, but I suppose an artistic collaboration. Um, I'm a fan of Formula One racing and also sure. a longtime fan of Takashi Murakami, the Japanese artist. Um, I love his work. And he recently launched a collaboration with Lewis Hamilton, who's probably the best driver living right now and on mm. the track, um, multiple world champion. And they released a collaboration together, of, you know, T-shirts and things like that with 
some Murakami artwork and, you know, sort of with a F1 Lewis Hamilton vibe to it. And, you know, looking at that artworks, you know, similarly to the project that you did already, like, you know, like the Murakami blossoms, just like is like bombs, chocolates, things, you know, they could so easily have something like that as a part of the release of the package or the offerings that it just seems, um, it seems so obvious. I wonder yeah. if at some point it will be it will be as ubiquitous as, you know, the T-shirt or the candy bar, or the button. If you know, three D really, printed yeah. things will become like the standard flair for marketing and branding. I really think it might, and that's our fastest growing area right now is for marketing and promotions. We've done stuff for a lot of TV uh, premieres or you know streaming premieres, Apple TV Plus. Amazon Prime, Netflix, and many more. You have promoting. a Stranger Things on. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's our example. little like spinoff for fun for the right. D&D uh, uh, geeks, I say effect- affectionately, mm-hmm. who are out there. But yeah, the promotions is just a, a huge uh, growing area for us. Reach out if you're interested in that aspect. And one thing we love about the swag um, that's 3D printed is that it's not waste, right? A lot of the little trinkets you might get, a pen or a keychain, a lot of those should really just go in the trash because people don't need them. But uh, if it's food, you can just eat it or you can even rinse it down the sink and it's not going to end up in a uh, in a landfill somewhere. That's true. I can't tell you how many jump drive keychain type there things I've gotten over the years. And <laughs> I just you know, refuse uh, them now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't even have I don't even have a port on my computer to act to use a jump drive anymore, <laughs> really. So <laughs> anyway, um, we are, as I promised, out of time, even though we still have lots and lots of things that we can talk about. Um, Kyle, I want to thank you for joining us and giving us sort of a, an intro primer on 3D printing for food and talking to us about Sugar Lab 3D. Again, if you're interested in checking them out online, it's sugarlab3d.com. Follow them on Instagram at sugarlab3d and reach out to them um, through one of those channels if you are interested in having something made. It's all just really beautiful um, and exceptional, although I haven't tasted it yet. So that will be the next thing. Um, but I'm sure it's probably delicious. I can't imagine having a team of, of pastry chefs and having it not be plus dehydrated things, dehydrated powders are usually so robust in terms of the flavors that you get because it's Mm -hmm. very, very concentrated. Um, if you like this show, Come back and listen next week. If you really like it and want other people to discover it and have some surprise and delight in their day, go over to iTunes. Give us a great five-star review. Help more people discover it and find it. If you think it's an important part of the food landscape, if you think it's important in our world to talk to people about their stories and what they're doing to move our delicious lives forward for more people Think about becoming a Heritage Radio Network member. Maybe, you know, I don't know, what'd you spend on candy this week or this month? Maybe give us your Halloween candy allowance. It'll help us keep the lights on, the mics hot, and make more radio. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bites. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.